You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist humanist podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On today's episode, we're going to talk about transcending the dualism of vanguardism and spontaneism. We'll be looking at some writings by Raya Dunyevskaya from 1953, where she tackles this problem by looking at Hegel's absolutes. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we'll be talking about vanguardism and spontaneism. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a moment to talk about some current events. We are recording this current event section on Wednesday, October 19th. And we're going to be talking about a few different revelations in the media recently about the depth of support for Trump and for the January 6th insurrection amongst various parts of the military and Justice Department. There was a report this week out about this leaked memo concerning the extent to uh, which members of the FBI were sympathetic to uh, the January 6th coup attempt. Uh, There was a piece in the New York Times this week about the extent to support for election lies and for the big lie uh, amongst uh, members of the military, especially the article focuses on combat vets who are running for office from the the far right. And of course, there's the ongoing story about the degree to which the Secret Service was cooperating with Trump's coup. We can only assume what might have happened because of this apparently intentional campaign to delete text messages. Regarding this FBI memo, I just read some summaries of it in different news stories, but Andrew, you said you found the actual memo itself. I've got the memo, and we'll include the link, and it was written from somebody redacted to uh, Paul Abate, who was Associate Deputy Director of the FBI. Now he's uh, Deputy Director of the FBI, and this was written exactly one week after January 6th. 2021. This person within the FBI is reporting on what's going on in field offices of the FBI about kind of pro-insurrection or semi-pro-insurrection sentiment uh, within the FBI. He says, for my first and second-hand information from conversations since January 6, there is at best a sizable percentage of the employee population that felt sympathetic to the group that stormed the Capitol and said it was no different than the BLM protests of last summer. Several also lamented that the only reason this is getting more attention is because of political correctness. Uh, He says, I literally had to explain to an agent from a blue state the difference between the BLM protests and, quote, an insurgent mob whose purpose was to prevent the execution of democratic processes at the behest of a sitting president. One is a smattering of criminals, the other is an organized group of domestic terrorists. He reports on a supervisory special agent in Red State office who told him that over 70% of his counterterrorism squad and about 75% of the agents in his office disagreed with the violence but could understand where the frustration was coming from, leading to the protesters getting carried away. Sounds like some platypi and Jacobin people. (laughs) Uh, Other people chalked it up to, oh, people just 
being quarantined and losing their jobs because of COVID. And then there's some redacted stuff about one squad having their TV on Newsmax. They used to listen to Fox News, but then said it was started to report fake news after the election. This is interesting. The person who's writing this says he's spoken to multiple African-American agents who have turned down asks to join SWAT, Surgical Weapons and Tactics, because they do not trust that every member of their office's SWAT team would protect them in an armed conflict, etc., etc. These people are representative of a larger group within the organization. In other words, all of this pro-insurrection stuff. Do I think they were in the group storming the Capitol? No. But, and then he goes into state and local cops, retired and current military personnel who were involved in the insurrection. Oh, at least one current federal agent is under investigation. A current Secret Service agent is under administrative leave, suspension, uh, blah, blah, blah. And then nothing about how the Bureau, that is the FBI, nothing about how the Bureau is comprised is unique from any of those other organizations. Right? I mean, he's telling the other people the FBI this, so. Well, reading these articles immediately reminded me of a conversation which we we must have had very recently on the podcast and in the context of lamenting the very slow and tepid response to the Capitol insurrection on the part of the Biden administration. I think it was you, Andrew, who uh, speculated that some of the tepidness and carefulness of the response may be due to the fear of Democrats, fear of people in the Justice Department that being too aggressive with their prosecution of these insurrectionists is going to cause harm to their own departments or possibly like bring us closer to even civil war if sizable amounts of the military and the Justice Department, the FBI, and police officers are sympathetic to the insurrectionists. We have a situation, first of all, within the courts, also within law enforcement and the Justice Department and so forth, of the situation of dual power. I mean, basically, it doesn't matter that the, the Democrats are in control of Congress and the presidency because in the courts and, and law enforcement and so forth, in the administration, in the Department of Justice, you got you got Trumpism there. And, and I, I think that uh, ever, everybody has got to think twice about what's going to be the reaction if we go by the book too much if we don't if if we don't placate these folks to some extent look we know that this was going back as far back as 2016 when the fbi was investigating hillary clinton's emails and a lot of that had to do with pro-Trump, anti-Clinton sentiment within the New York uh, office of, of the FBI. And Comey was like, you know, he felt like he couldn't just like blow this off. And he felt like uh, he had to he had to go public and say, oh, we're, we're, investigation is still open, all of this. That was to, to placate the, the Trumpism that was rife in the, in, the, in, in the New York office. So these people, I mean, I understand, but I can't be sympathetic. I, I can't be sympathetic with them. They, I mean, they have a responsibility, and they have a responsibility to crack down against this stuff. You might win, you might lose, but this playing footsie with these people is, it just gets worse and worse and worse, and they hold on to more and more power each year. Well, onto this New York Times story about combat vets running for office from the extreme right. Um, the story points out that traditionally both parties have presented political candidates who are veterans of the military as having a certain bipartisan appeal. 
you know, the patriotism and blah, blah, blah has something that transcends, you know, partisanship, blah, blah, blah. But now we're seeing this phenomena where the veterans who are running as Republicans are like the extreme right of the Trumpites. This was not really surprising to me because I, I associate the military with like most reactionary parts of our government. But it's like so many things in the world of Trumpism, we, we finally see the real face of so many things. Things that were once like occluded and obscured, thinly veiled, just become more out in the open and blazing. So this is not like a surprising phenomenon to me, but it's still worrying. And it's also worrying just because people, you know, veterans, especially influential ones, have you know, they have influence within the military establishment as well. And like dual power within the military, like growing proto-fascist or fascist segments of the military, that's like a really dangerous situation for our country to be in. And I, again, don't see any sign that Democrats have any real plan to deal with that problem. I don't, I don't know how you deal with that problem, but it doesn't seem like anyone's really taking it seriously. They're not They're not taking it seriously. I felt like the, the New York Times even kind of put a smile face on what they were doing, basically saying that they were anti-war and anti-interventionist and, and so forth. It wasn't until way down in the middle of the story that you get Ruben Gallego... He's a congressman from, uh, I think, uh, Arizona. He's a former Marine. He was in Iraq in combat. And he says, we all understand the Constitution of the United States. And some of these men are really leaning into outright fascism. So it, it took until the middle of the story and a, a, a Democratic congressman. So they had words that they could say that it wasn't just anti-intervention and anti-war sentiment. That's kind of how they, you know, they, they, they try to portray it for some reason here. Yeah, well, well, especially with if anything that involves the military in this country, there's just this moral blackmail where there's a certain process of like genuflection and thank you for your service, blah, 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 that has to be said before you can even get into anything political. Institutionally, the New York Times has to be so careful that they don't just sound like they're hating on the vets, you know? There's just this ob obnoxious thing we have in our country. You're right, like mainstream news organizations cannot afford to continue to give that level of deference to the military if they have, they have openly fascist elements within them. Let's talk about the the Secret Service a little bit. I mean, this is extremely interesting because we've got all of these text messages that disappeared. Oh, well, we were just doing a pro forma wiping of the, the phones and, and resetting them. Nobody believes no, that. Nobody believes it. And they must have known that nobody was going to believe it. They did it anyway. So it's like a giant middle finger. Right. Of course, they did it immediately before they knew what was going to happen. But what what it tells me is that it was so egregious and so blatant that they had to say, uh-oh, we cannot be caught with this. We have to risk whatever comes down the road by, by doing this because this ties Trump to this, this ties us to Trump. It might be a middle finger or it might be this is a desperate move of people who are very desperate. Right, that's true. Because it has to be, you know, worse than obstruction. 
Right. If you're you're going to do something which is obstru- an obstruction, then you, there must be a calculation that you're the crime is worse than the obstruction. Or it could be like what you say is we're going to get away with this, and that you know we'll we'll, we'll show them. It, it could it could it could be that. Uh, well, they very much are have gotten away with it because there hasn't really been any consequences. Right. There haven't been consequences, especially to the Secret Service yet. Now, what's very interesting is that you did have some Secret Service testimony uh, regarding what was going on with Pence in the parking garage underneath the Capitol when he was hiding out on January 6th. And... There's this incident that we know of where, you know, they tell him, get in the car. And he goes, I'm not getting in that car. I trust you, he says, person he's speaking to, but you're not the one behind the wheel. And the way it was reported by, you know, whoever for the Secret Service is Pence didn't want it to look like the insurrectionists were winning and he was fleeing in, in, in fear. But there are people who don't believe that, including people on the, the January 6th Congressional Committee. I heard one, I think it was uh, Jamie Raskin. And he just said, we basically have, have finished our public hearings and we're close to finishing our investigation. But this really looms large. And it wouldn't loom large if it were just a matter of Pence not wanting it to look like he was fleeing. The real point is, within the Secret Service, there were people who were not going to obey orders, that were going to obey Trump's orders, and they were going to get Pence out of there, maybe as far away as Alaska, so that he couldn't certify the vote. Maybe even hand him over to the people with the gallows there. God knows what. And Pence isn't talking, and that is... Why is that? Is it that he thinks he's got a political future, or that he reckons, well, you know, I'm a Christian nationalist, and maybe I'm not really for fascism, but if it's a choice between the Democrats and fascism... Eh, maybe fascism. Well, I can only speculate on Mike Pence's calculations, but Mike Pence, if you're out there and you want to come on the podcast and tell us what you're thinking, you're welcome to join us anytime. Uh, but that's it for our current event section. Up next, we're going to talk about spontaneism and vanguardism and Hegel and Duniuskaya and all sorts of great stuff. So stay tuned. So on today's episode, we are going to be talking about a piece that Andrew has just written. It's called... Dunyevskaya's 1953 Letters, Transcending Vanguardism and Spontaneism. Andrew, there's a bunch of stuff we're going to get into in, in this paper, but try to give us some context and for reading what are kind of difficult writing by Dunyevskaya that she did in 1953. She's talking about Hegel, her interpretation of some elements of Hegel. She's talking about this duality of vanguardism and spontaneism and how to transcend that. And there's a lot going on. Maybe you can give us like a summary of of what you were trying to do with the paper. Okay, I'll I'll do my best. Uh, Yeah, the the letters are very difficult, not even entirely because of the subject matter, you know, and the fact that it's heavy-duty Hegel interpretation, Um, but... They weren't written for publication. They were written to co-leaders of hers in uh, the Johnson Forest Tendency, you know, C.L.R. James, Grace Lee. And she had long philosophic uh, discussion with them by means of letters and person conversations and so forth. So they had a lot of background and she was writing in an informal way to people she knew very well. So you have some context there that they share that if you 
you personally don't share it, you're, you're not going to get what's going on. But that's a big problem. But basically, what, what happens is, you know, the Johnson Forest tendency was a kind of uh, unorthodox tendency within the Trotskyist movement. About three years before she uh, writes this, 1950, they leave Trotskyism for, for good. The tendency becomes a, an independent organization, correspondence committees, and then the internal contradictions within the tendency more and more come to the fore. And when they left Trotskyism, they rejected the theory of the vanguard party, the idea that, you know, the masses uh, on their own only have a trade union consciousness or, you know, what reforms within capitalism, that they're not spontaneously revolutionary. They rejected that. But when you have that rejection, what do you have positively uh, as the alternative. Where do you go? Well, what these 53 letters and the whole uh, subsequent trajectory shows is there are radically different directions that you can go in. You know, there's the, the direction of Dunyevskaya and Marxist humanism on the one hand, and the directions of, which were slightly different, but kind of the same, of uh, C.L.R. James and, and, and Grace Lee Boggs on the other. Uh, and this was already starting to gnaw on Donevskaya in, in the early 50s. One thing that, that happened was when they formed their new organization upon leaving uh, the Socialist Workers' Party, the Trotskyist movement, the new organization, it had no public presence. They didn't even have like a public newspaper. They had a, a newsletter, you know, a mimeographed newspaper or whatever, you know, for members and very close friends of, of, of the organization. And that never sat very well with her. But the immediate event that precipitated these, these letters was the death of uh, Stalin. And once Stalin dies, she writes this, you know, very serious piece trying to say, okay, here's what's in store for us. Here are the implications of his death for what's going to be happening in the USSR and for world affairs and, and for the revolutionary movement. And Grace Lee was the signed editor of that uh, issue of the, the newspaper, newsletter, and she, she refused to publish it as is. And Dunyevskaya was making a big deal about Stalin's death and the implications of that for the world. And Grace Lee was saying, look, the, the proletariat doesn't care, the working class doesn't care, the American working class is, you know, they're not into it. And, you know, so what she, she chose, Grace Lee chose to focus on was this story told by James' wife, who was a young worker in a, in a factory, uh, Selma James. When the news came over the radio that Stalin had died, the women are ignoring it and they're exchanging hamburger recipes. This is a story Dunyaskaya told throughout the years again and again and again. So on the one hand, you got these workers uh, exchanging hamburger recipes. Okay, but that wasn't the, the entirety of the reaction of the American working class by any means. Charles Denby, who was later the leader-in-chief of, of Marxist humanist organizations, newspaper, uh, he was an auto worker black guy from the very deep south sharecropping family and he reported what you know one of the workers around him said they learned that Stalin had died and his co-worker says I have just the man to replace him 
my foreman. So, you know, there were two, two attitudes battling out within the Johnson Forest tendency, and there were two uh, attitudes uh, quite present in the, the, the American working class. So we can be clear for people. You're not just saying, like, the two attitudes were just about the specific historic moment and whether it was important to write about the death of Stalin and theorize its potential importance to the, the movement. Right, but this was like a this was like symbolic of a, what was to become a bigger disagreement about the role of theory in the movement. Right. I mean, I don't know whether there, there's a big overarching battle at the time within the American working class in times of attitudes, but yet yeah, certainly within the Johnson Forest tendency, this was an incident that sharpened, disclosed two very different alternatives to what to do, how to go once you have repudiated the, the conception of a vanguard party. Presumably, Grace Lee Boggs is dismissive of the uh, attempt to talk about Stalin because she, if this concern is not present spontaneously amongst the working class, it's not worth talking about. I mean, is that the position that... I, I, I don't know that it was ever articulated as such. I, I know much later in her life, um, I mean, I, I read an interview with her 10 years ago or so, and she basically characterized... Dunyevskaya's politics that she, Boggs, broke from as just searching for signs among workers, among the masses, there are people saying what you want them to say. And she said that she herself went in a very different direction and basically put herself under the leadership of the man who became her husband, James Boggs, you know, a black worker, and... The idea is you kind of like don't bring your politics and your ideology to the situation, but you follow what the masses are doing or something. I mean, it was not real clear to me what she was saying. She basically thought that Dunyevskaya's stuff was just trying to attribute her own thinking to the masses or to find signs, find ways in which she could do that. Which, which I, I, don't, I don't think is, is true at all, but I, I try to explain in, in, in the article what it is. I don't, I don't make an issue of that, Grace Lee Boggs said later, but I, I do try to explain what it is, and it's not that. Um, I think that, is there anything else in terms of the context that, that we, you've left out, or should we kind of get into some of the meat of this? Uh, no, I would just reiterate that, you know, this, this whole dispute which broke out, you know, it was a major dispute within the organization, uh, the correspondence committees, the Johnson Forest tendency, about gracefully suppressing Dunyaskaya's article, and people were lining up. It, it, it was a big thing for a couple of months within the uh, Johnson Forest tendency. So Dunyaskaya basically picks up, you know, she resumes this philosophic correspondence that the three of them had, Lee, James, and herself, that kind of ended in late 1950, early 1951. Now we're already talking about May 1953. She resumes it, and she begins to look at, very carefully, the last chapter of Hegel's Science of Logic and the last chapter of his Philosophy of Mind. Uh, they're entitled, uh, respectively, uh, Absolute Idea and Absolute Mind, or Absolute Spirit. Let's plunge in and see what we can do with this uh, and make sense in, in, in a short podcast. Just as a, I guess, a disclaimer for our listeners, we can't cover everything in your paper. and We definitely can't cover everything in 
Dunyaskaya's 1953 letters in these this short 45-minute segment. So people need to, if this is, inspires them to, to try to understand this topic some more, they should dip their toe into the topic a little more uh, thoroughly and do some of this reading and um, correspond with us. Let us know what you think and try to you know, figure this stuff out. Uh, I, at the first time I read the 1953 letters, I was completely lost. First time I read it, I couldn't make sense of them. Second time I read it, third time I read it. <laughs> yeah, it so, but one of the things that, so I find Hegel very difficult. And sometimes when Dunyaskaya writes about Hegel, I find it difficult. But there are these moments when I start to, it starts to make more sense to me. And that's when when she's more explicit about the way that she's interpreting terms, categories within Hegel in terms of the Marxist humanism, in terms of like the struggle for the new a new society, and because it, it makes it more concrete for me, I can be I can understand it a little better when it's like we're talking about a concrete thing and it's not completely abstract. So you start off talking about why she interprets absolute mind as the new society. Maybe we could start with that. Like, what does that even mean to interpret Hegel's concept of absolute mind as the new society? First of all, mind does not mean what we tend to mean by mind in, in English. The German word is Geist. It's often translated as spirit. So the question is, what does Hegel mean by mind or spirit? Uh, and in, in the article, I quote John Burbage's uh, Historical Dictionary of Hegelian Philosophy. Uh, he says that for Hegel, spirit means self-conscious life. And it applies to the divine as well as the human. Okay, so it's not just uh, otherworldly, it's also worldly. And he also says that in Hegel's earlier book, Phenomenology of Spirit, or Phenomenology of Mind, uh, the chapter on spirit describes a kind of knowledge in which members of a community understand and grasp the complexity of their own interaction. So this is about, you know, a human community understanding itself, the interactions of, it, of its members. So it's about the self-understanding of, of, of human society. And when you get to the philosophy of mind or the philosophy of spirit, this is the, the final work of the three works in Hegel's encyclopedia. What we've got is objective mind, subjective mind, and the unification of the two, which is the which is absolute mind. So objective mind is kind of like what we think of as, as the opposite of mind. This is, Hegel's looking at law, he's looking at morality, he's looking at the institution of the family, the state, civil society. So he's looking at social institutions and he calls this objective mind. Why? Because here, the subjective concepts of the spirit permeate they infuse these institutions. So this, this, this is not just inert matter that exists. Okay, these, these, these are human institutions. They, they have some subjectivity to them, even though they actually exist objectively. So here's what Hegel himself has to say, and he wrote this in paragraphs 484, 485 of uh, The Philosophy of Mind at the start of his discussion of objective mind. He said that freedom is the inward function and aim of the free will, uh, but the free will stands, quote, in relation to an external and already subsisting objectivity. So we've got, you know, the free will of, of, of human beings. On the one hand, we've got this objectivity that's already out there, 
Hegel's an idealist, but he says this objectivity is already out there. Uh, it's external to us. And then he says, quote, but the purposive action of this will is to realize its concept, liberty, in these externally objective aspects, making the latter a world molded by the former. In other words, liberty shaped into the actuality of a world. So this is all about the realization of freedom in the actual institutions, social institutions that exist in, in the real world. It's about the transformation of reality. Um, you, you described that very clearly, actually. Maybe I'll repeat it back to you. How's that? Okay. So the objective world is these objective institutions are, are a world created by human subjects, but they have an objectivity outside of human subjectivity because they have a certain permanence that lasts beyond uh, the individual subjectivities of people. They're, it's embedded in institutions and economic structures and, and, and political institutions and things. You I mean, Hegel's not saying this, right? But in a capitalist society, these institutions operate outside of the control of people. They, they control uh, the subjects instead of the subjects controlling them. If we were to achieve real liberty, real freedom, we would have to live in a world in which that objective world was transformed in order to be under the collective control of the subjects rather than some inverted order where the objective world controls the subjects. Yeah, and I think Hegel did say all of that except for the part about capitalism. Yeah. So when Dinoskaya is interpreting this category, absolute mind, as the new society. And in case people aren't familiar with that kind of phrase, the new society, we're talking about a theoretical future society where, I don't know what you want to call it, communism, socialism, post-capitalist world, whatever the label is we want to put on it. That's what people are referring to. When she's interpreting absolute mind as the new society, what exactly is the claim? Is it that this is what Hegel would have said if he understood the way capitalism works? Is it that, well, this is like we're taking like Hegel's logic and applying it to this other thing, which is like the struggle against capitalism. So is it like a claim about the real meaning of Hegel's terms? Is it a claim that this is like an improved version of Hegel given certain like presuppositions that like historical materialism or Marxist critique of capital? Is it like, or is it just like an application of Hegel's way of thinking to a different topic outside of Hegel? Okay, it, it, it's definitely not the, the last of those three. It's definitely not just taking a, a framework and applying it to a political context. Because that's sometimes the way people think about Marx and Hegel. She's not doing that. No, I mean, clearly the context of what Hegel was talking about, you know, just the little that we've talked about right here, clearly the context is political. The, re the realization of freedom in, in the real institutions of the world, I mean, that's that's clearly um, a matter, matter of politics, and this is a man who is, is writing pretty much in the period immediately following the French Revolution uh, and, and so forth. So, but I just want to make that clear for people because sometimes people think about, you know, as Marxists, we just kind of take some abstract structure from Hegel and like slap it onto other topics, and that's like the extent to which Hegel is applicable but she's not this is not her approach at all no whereas you know it's a question of how much hegel thought that the freedom was realized in the real institutions of the world and there's all kinds of issues about that the point i think is that the central problematic of the philosophy of mind is this realization of freedom in the real world it's the unification 
of objective mind and subjective mind, or, and that unification is the new society. Wh whatever you, you want to call it, okay? You could have a different view of what, what that unification would be, and so you could have a different view of what would be the new society. But just to keep it on the philosophic level, you no longer have the society that you had where you've got this disjunction, this lack of unity between the two. Now you've got the real world fully infused, fully permeated by what it is to be to be human. Okay, I mean, for, for Hegel, it was very clear. It was it was liberty. It was the, the free will. Uh, the, what it means to be human is liberty, free will. For Hegel, yeah. Yeah. you got, you got to be careful here because it, it, it was not for Hegel even like he, – he wasn't saying that this is a constant, invariable, pre-existing condition of all human beings uh, throughout all time. He said like, like the Greeks, you know, the ancient Greeks didn't have this concept of liberty. And he was not the only one. I've read this elsewhere. There's a whole book uh, about the, the, the origin of consciousness or self-consciousness by this guy, Julian Jaynes. Uh, oh, yeah, I know that book. Yeah, right. So he goes through this very long discussion of all kinds of societies, including the, the ancient Greeks. You know, I've also read it, like, in Paul Feyerabend. I mean, it's, it's fairly well accepted that, like, the ancient Greek thought was not that human beings are free, but that, that people are basically puppets doing what, like, you know, the gods or whatever command them to do. So this is what it is to be human, but it does not, like, emerge all at once at the beginning of time. It, it emerges, you know, through history for, for Hegel and, and for, for many others. So Duniovskaya is writing in 1953. She's writing to uh, C.L.R. James and to Grace Lee Boggs, and she's discussing Hegel in the context of this dispute that's broken out in the organization about Duniovskaya's censored article about Stalin. You know, why is she turning to Hegel in this particular moment and what is you know what is this reading of Hegel this interpretation of uh, absolute mind as the new society what does that have to do with what's going on in the organization right why she turned to Hegel I you know I don't know they have had the three of them you know a long discussion on, on philosophy letters 1949 50 lots lots of letters in, into early 51 then then it, then it broke off but this kind of return to hegel was part of the organization even before that james sailor james wrote what was called the the nevada document because he, he wrote it in, in in nevada later it was published as notes on dialectics and he he kind of gave a, a reading about what was significant in hegel for us for the trotskyist movement and for the the Johnson Forest Tendency specifically. Dunitskaya later said, you know, she liked it at the time. It's very clear from the, the, the 1953 letters that she says, okay, here we have to go further. She says that explicitly. She had problems with it already by that time. So I think what she was saying is, I, I got to do this myself. James did not do it quite satisfactorily. I, I guess she was thinking, hoping she might find something in Hegel that might illuminate the problems that she was facing, that the organization was facing, that the revolutionary movement was facing at that time. And the rest of her life indicates that, yeah, she, she found it and, and, and she worked it out. The really key moment, I think, was, you know, when she comes to the end of the discussion of the, the absolute idea chapter, she says, ah, 
this this notion that we've gotten from Lenin about transitions and revolutions that's not sufficient and Hegel is telling us that the, the further development not just in uh, ideas not just the, the logic but the further development in society mind the unification of uh, objective and subjective mind or, or spirit that is not a transition so from this she begins to work out a, a whole new conception but what she's very clearly trying to do is work out a practice and a conception that offers an alternative to vanguardist theory and practice but does not succumb to the kind of privatization of one's politics, withdrawal from the public realm, and really the, the abandonment of Marxism. I mean, it became clear, you know, that, that throughout the decades that Grace Lee abandoned Marxism, C.L.R. James, she was already seeing that. I mean, that, that was, I think, part of what was going on with the, the, the hamburger recipe stuff and, and the, the, the lack of the objective analysis, and let's just sink ourselves in, into what the, the, the masses are saying and doing at the moment and take our, our leadership from them or else just go in parallel to them, but, but without the, the interaction that has traditionally characterized Marx, Marxism, you know, because the vanguardists are all about that interaction. Well, it's a specific kind of interaction, but if you don't think it through that carefully, you go, well, you know, interaction, that could mean that we're telling them what to do and we don't want that. So, you know, let's just leave them alone. Right. You kind of end up in this dead end. Yeah. I, I think she, she was seeing this was a, a dead end. She didn't want to go there. She didn't want the organization to go there. She didn't want the world to go there. And it, it, it was up to her to, to, to work something right. out. So, but what is vanguardism or spontaneism or some other, some other alternative uh, have to do with absolute mind and absolute idea? Like, what's the connection here? They don't have anything to do with absolute spirit. That's the problem. That's the problem is that she's focused in particular on the spontaneism of James and, and, and of Lee. She's saying that, look, if we care about the new society, if we care about the unification of the subjective idea of the new society, the realization of freedom and its realization in the world, your spontaneism is not going to achieve that. And so how do we achieve this once we've said that the vanguardism is not the way to go? And so what this has to do with absolute spirit is her alternative to vanguardism as distinct from their alternative to vanguardism. She's she's working out a, a new relationship between theory and practice that's not vanguardist and, and is not spontaneist either. And what does theory and practice have to do with this? Well, Hegel's chapter on the absolute idea is all about the relation of theory and practice. What, he, what Hegel means by the absolute idea is the, the unity of the theoretical idea and the practical idea. And in a way, it's very much like what he talks about in the philosophy of spirit, because the theoretical idea is about making real the realization of the true, of that which is true. You seek truth. That's what theory is all about. So finding the truth, getting the truth, that's the job of theory. Practice is, you know, in the best case, it's about doing good. It's about making things good. So there's been all this, like, issue of, like, well, which one is higher? And Hegel tries to 
overcome the division between these two concepts, getting things right and doing good. For Hegel, this is still like theoretical practice. Yeah, for every... <laughs> yeah. Oh, so every, I, everything's kind of theoretical practice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But for our use, we can think of it more like practice in the real world of transforming reality. Right. And and Hegel is not, it's not that he doesn't see that. It's not that he doesn't recognize that. But he, and it's partly because of, you know, he's a philosopher and that's his project. He always has ideas themselves moving it's not like the people are doing things with the ideas it's it, he presents it always as the ideas themselves have this movement so he's, he's always thinking in terms of the self-movement of of ideas which isn't wrong but it's you know it's not the, a fully historical materialist way of understanding the matter so Dunius guy uses these terms movement from theory and movement from practice in case people aren't used to hearing these phrases is it enough to simplify and just say she just means theory and practice like what's the word movement doing at the beginning of the phrase yeah you, movement is is all important here because we're talking about unification of the two aspects okay unification of theory and practice unification of the subjective uh, will to liberty and its realization in the institutions you got you know that's not where you begin so you got to move. And of course, for revolutionaries, all revolutionary thought is about movement. We're here, we have to get there, we, so there's got to be some kind of process of movement. But what's striking to me about the the conception that Duniskaya worked out in opposition to, to, to vanguardism, actually in opposition to spontaneism also, is that you get a movement from two sides. You get a movement not only from theory to practice, Okay, you get a movement from practice to theory so that both sides overcome their initial condition, their initial one-sidedness and separation from the other. And since the, the movement from practice is really, it's a lot of movements, you know, mass struggles uh, and so forth, what Dunyevskaya is saying is, no, they don't need to be led by some external force, the vanguard, and nor is the realization of freedom just a matter of them spontaneously doing stuff and we're going to somehow get there. But they have to transcend their initial condition, lay hold of appropriate theory for themselves, overcome the, the one-sidedness, and that one-sidedness is very clearly a product of class society, of alienation, of workers not having uh, access to, to education and the time, to just think about concepts and so forth. So there's going to be an overcoming of that by means of the unification of, of, of the two sides. You're going to have the, the mass movement striving to overcome that one-sidedness, and for that it needs theory, it needs uh, ideas, it can't just do it by its spontaneous movement. And there's this other side that wants to unify, the groups like ours, wants to unify with the masses and to, you know, engage with them on, on this theoretical and philosophic level. And, and this is the way we're going to get there. But it's absolutely crucial if you talk about the unification of theory and practice that it's not just like you're putting them together like ham and cheese in a sandwich. It's not like, well, they do their thing and we do our thing, like in parallel, okay? The, the point is that the initial situation is, 
inadequate, it's unstable, it won't help us realize the the goal. What the Vanguard has always recognized, and you know, they're right, is that like if we just have our ideas and they don't permeate the, the masses and, and, and reality, we're, we're not going to get there. Where they're wrong is to think that they have to bring something to people that's not already there. The, the spontaneous however we're like well you don't need any of this stuff you know whatever's there is fine and and the rest of it is just going to be picked up on route in in the process of struggle as as if doing things struggle activity without reflection is going to get us anywhere i just think it's a much more realistic down to earth way of of the Dunyevskaya has of, of of looking at what's needed without this kind of like dogma that the masses can't uh, think on their own and without the dogma which is born of uh, we don't want anybody to, to mess with the masses and, and tell them what to think you, you know it's it's not a matter of telling people what to think it's it's a, it's a matter of providing people access and, and having engagement with them so that they can develop their own thinking Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angie Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing an all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice 
as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. You know, if, if people have read any of Dunia Sky's books, they'll see examples of this idea of the movement from practice. Maybe this is going over things you've already said, but she's not just talking about practical activity. She's talking about practical activity that constitutes like a movement of ideas, the emergence of new ideas, the emergence of new critiques of society, and the emergence of like visions for a new society. And she's saying that this isn't just like the masses spontaneously coming to ideas that like the theoreticians already worked out and we're waiting for them to come to, but that there's actually important part of the development of ideas that comes from the struggle for freedom, right? Yeah, and it's not only, I don't know if she ever addressed this specifically, I don't think it's only that it emerges in the course of struggle, except in the, the broader sense that most people live lives where every day is a struggle. But I think the, the, the point is very clearly to, to me now, after many, many years, it's very clear that her, her point is that the one and the same idea is present not only in groups like ours, but it's also present among, among the masses. When you read Daniel Sky, you'll see that she's often writing about, communicating with, studying uh, mass movements that are sometimes like outside of the traditional subject of leftist thinking she's not just like hanging out on shop floors seeing what like workers in factories are talking about yeah and she's not talking about electing two more members to the european parliament right she's looking at like the struggle for freedom and black americans she's looking at like the women's movement in the u.s wherever there's like new ideas emerging about freedom she's interested in that because she sees that as being part of one and the same development, this movement from practice toward this idea of freedom in a new society. Yeah, and this is this is what Grace Lee Boggs was referring to. I mentioned this earlier when she characterizes it as Dunia Sky is just looking for things out there among the masses that confirm what she already thought. Right. So why is why why is Grace Lee Boggs wrong on that point? Because it's it's, it's not just a, a search for confirmation. It's trying to get the, the revolutionary movement and oftentimes people in her own organization to recognize that these ideas are out there and that this is the new foundation on which we can build instead of, oh, well, what we have to do is entice people with, you know, another struggle for 50 cents more an hour in wages or we got to get people into our party or we've got to do this or that and instead of appealing to the humanism that is present among the masses and can be seen again and again if first of all your your eyes are open you're you're listening and second of all you're not concerned with just the question of 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 numbers at any moment i mean it may well be that you know if you did some 
public opinion poll at any moment, you're not going to find the majority of the world's masses, certainly, you know, in the United States, you're not going to find people agreeing with Marxist humanism. That's not the issue. The issue is, are these ideas out there in these mass movements among people, regular people? Are they struggling for freedom? Do they they have some understanding of their own? And is this a basis on which further development can be had. This is not just a question of, of looking for people to confirm what, what people say to confirm your, your own views. This is, this is about a new mode of revolutionary praxis. And it, it's not what Grace Lee got herself involved in, which was kind of like any, anything and everything by the, by the end of her life. She was completely without any kind of like rudder and any kind of mooring and, and clear and consistent sense of direction. At one moment, it would be like cozying up to Chairman Mao's thought or in Chroma or later community gardens. I mean, this is what you have when you're just looking empirically at what seems to be out there at the moment. I don't know if she fully embraced the conception that C.L.R. James had, but he really had, underlying it all, he had the kind of an economic determinist conception as to why all that was needed was, was, was the spontaneous activity. So, but then there's the movement from theory and obviously, probably maybe easier for people more familiar with the idea of like theoreticians working at ideas and advancing ideas like independently. How is that a movement toward practice that isn't vanguardism? Because it's not, it's not that the theoretical ideas are like just waiting around for to read the to read the masses and see what is like being developed by the activity of mass movements or such right like ideas can develop on their own they can be worked out theoretically they can move uh independently of what's like happening uh this week in capitalism you could live in a reactionary age and you could still be uh working out theoretical ideas and theoretical movement could still be happening regardless of whether the ideas are appearing in the world around you right it's like it's an independent thing on its own they're both they're both independent things the movement frame how does the theoretical idea move toward practice i mean i mean that's a lot of what she's trying to figure out because she's talking about a small group of people who are mostly coming from this theoretical orientation they read marx they read hegel and they're trying to find a role for themselves in the struggle not for just for themselves, but they want to work out this relationship with theory. So, like, how do you move toward practice when you're you're doing theory? Besides going out and selling people newspapers and telling them what they should be thinking. Yeah, I tell you, the newspaper selling project probably has come to an end. I mean, I think it's clear that revolutionary theory strives for you know unification with uh, with practice. I mean, unless you're talking about like. Herbert Marcuse and the Great Refusal and stuff, but in general, yeah, I mean, the question is really, I think, the way you said it at one point, how can this be done in a non-vanguardist way? What, what, what is a non-vanguardist conception of this? And I don't know, let me, I, I want to hear what you think about it, because I think you have some ideas about this, yeah. Well, in some ways, I think, when you said earlier that you think of this as like a very practical uh, orientation that she has I feel the same way it, maybe it's not like some real mystical formula but people who are thinking theoretically about things for one thing like something we do a lot on the podcast for instance for regular listeners we're not just talking abstractly about ideas but they're directly related to what's happening in the world not in a way that like we're trying to figure out how to like 
package some pre-existing party line into like selling points to appeal to masses of people or not like we're trying to come up with some vanguardist political strategy in order to like get people interested in our organization in practical terms so that we can later like indoctrinate them with some pre-formed Trotskyist platform. But the ideas that we're discussing, whether they be Hegel or Marx or anything, they're being developed for the current context, which in our time is like the struggle against fascism, the struggle against reformist social democracy, climate change, and Russian war against Ukraine, all these things. They're like directly relevant to like the current struggles that that are going on right now. They're not just like some abstract ideal far away. So that's like one way like the movement from theory is, is directly related to practice in like current time. But there's also like a need to find ways to project ideas and to engage in the battle of ideas and to communicate with mass movements. And that's, I think, something that like our organization still strives to figure out better ways to do because for one, we're just limited in numbers and it's a loud world full of voices all screaming at each other. So that's like to still something to, to, to try to figure out how to do better. I don't, I don't actually know the answer how to do that better other, other than to have more people involved in those efforts to like reach more people. Right. I wouldn't say that there's necessarily an answer, a single answer, or, or that we have the answer or a set of adequate answers. But yeah, I agree with everything you said. One thing that Donetskaya said at one point is we, we need to have such appreciation for the mass movements, for the movement from theory that we never again let theory and practice get separated. And that is, I think, the really crucial point of how what she's saying is just completely different from the vanguardist conception as well as the spontaneist conceptions. If you, if you look at the actual practice of, of the vanguardists, it's always maintaining a separation between theory and practice because it's always appealing to people where they're at. It's, it's never giving them the real ideas. It's always, you know, saying, okay, well, what we need is this struggle for 50 cents more an hour. And then you say, and we need socialism or something. But what you're trying to do is lead people step by step, like pieces along a game board to the point where you want them to be that they are not yet. And that is not a great appreciation for the move from below. And that is why they separate theory and practice. Tonya Sky is saying, no, The same ideas that we have, they appear, you know, in one form to us, but the same idea is present in in the masses. It's articulated, felt, whatever, maybe in a different way, but the humanism that, that we're striving for is there. You know, it's there in the African Revolution. It's there among the American coal miners. It's there in the women's liberation movement, etc., etc., etc. So we can appeal to people on the basis of the highest thinking because it's not foreign to them it's not alien to them it's not being brought from 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 the outside you talk about in your paper the idea that spontaneism and vanguardism actually have something in common so what is it that they have in common we we tend to think of them as like opposites you know and and they're opposites but they're opposite sides of the, the same coin and so what they have in common is is a coin and what is that coin? And what I argue in, in, in this article is that what they have in common, the coin, is external mediation. External mediation is, is just, 
it's it's like cause and effect is external mediation. You know, you've got one billiard ball and it moves. So its movement is mediated. What's it mo- mediated by another billiard ball? One billiard ball strikes the other billiard ball and so it moves. There's a whole different kind of mediation, which is dialectical mediation or, 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 or self-mediation. And that's what Donetskaya is really working out in these letters is one and the same movement coming from two directions, moving from practice, moving from theory, unifying, you know, each remaining itself, not fusing into one, but operating together in, in, in an ongoing movement so that we have one process uh, of overall movement that requires both thought and activity, right? You're not going to have self-movement, self-mediation with, without the, the, the both sides. But what you have it's with both vanguardism and, and spontaneism is is not that. You've got mediation that is external. It's like the, the one billiard ball hitting the other billiard ball. It's very easy to see that in the case of vanguardism. The masses are, are not revolutionary, according to the vanguardist conception, uh, on their own. So you need a billiard ball to hit them so they'll move in the right direction. And that's the, the, the theory coming from the revolutionary intellectuals. Okay. It's harder for, for most people to see that spontaneism also relies on uh, some s- sort of uh, external mediation. But here's the, the, the point. When you say that there's spontaneous activity, okay, well, it could be spontaneous activity of any kind. What's going to assure that it leads to forward development? I mean, it could just be some workers in a plant ignoring the news and trading hamburger recipes. What's that lead to? What leads to an ongoing forward development of uh, spontaneous struggle? Well, there's always got to be some assurance. And in the case of C.L.R. James, he made very clear what his underlying theory was. And he kept repeating, repeating, repeating this phrase that occurs in the next to the last chapter of Volume 1 of Capital uh, about the revolt of the workers being organized, united, disciplined by the very mechanism of capitalist production. So what is the external mediator here? It's not a group of people like with the vanguardists, but the external mediation is the very mechanism of capitalist production. And he kept saying this again and again and again. And Duniskaya makes a reference to this at the end of her May 12, 1953 letter. And James keeps repeating it, keeps repeating it. You know, at one point I read, and I I talk about this in, in, in the article, a whole decade later, in fact, ten and a half years later, John F. Kennedy's assassinated. C.L.R. James is in London. He's giving a talk, and he manages to smuggle in, in the midst of talking about the assassination of John F. Kennedy, you know, a couple of days before, he manages to smuggle in organized, united, disciplined by the very mechanism of capitalist production. This just became his mantra. And that was his assurance that the spontaneous struggle would develop into the new society on its own. So it, it, there's an external mediation. You know, you just wait around for, for capitalism to organize the workers and, and to move them forward. Zunievskaya's response to this, not necessarily in, in these letters, but over the years is, yeah, there is the spontaneous struggle. It is, you know, organized, united, disciplined by the very mechanism of capitalist production. But... And she does say this in, in the 53 letters. What we reached at that point is the high point of, of capitalism and, and, and a deremption and a complete pulling apart of the two sides, two irreconcilable opposites. That's not yet the new society. 
okay? Revolution is not yet the new society, okay? What do we need is not just revolt. What we need is the creation of new human relations. And that doesn't just arise spontaneously. And, and so that's, that's what she was working on. She didn't, she, you know, she never like rejected this idea that revolutionary sentiment is, is there in, among masses, that what, what kind of uh, brings it about is the conditions that people face under capitalism, that the proletariat, you know, has a certain discipline because of its role in society and, you know, it faces uh, discipline in, in, in the factories and workplaces and so forth. She didn't reject any of that. She just said, this is totally inadequate if you're concerned about more than just overthrowing the old society and you want to create a new one. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies.